have your Bibles, please turn in them to Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4, if you're visiting with us today, we've had a sermon series going on this new year in the first few chapters of Revelation, and we came to chapter 4 here on Easter Sunday and Palm Sunday as well as we see this vision that the Apostle John has of the risen and exalted Lord Jesus Christ and how fitting it is on Easter morning that we praise him for who he is now in eternity. And so I'm going to read Revelation 4 and 5, and I encourage you to grab a Bible in the chair in front of you if you can. Um, Otherwise, it's going to sound very strange to you as I just start reading from Revelation. So how can Revelation 4 and 5 be an Easter text? Why not go to the Gospels where we see the resurrection accounts? It's a good question. Wrestle with this myself. <laughs> but as we see, as we will read here in chapter 5, we see that the Lamb of God who was slain, who has risen, is Lord and Savior and God over all. Hear now the reading of God's holy word to us this morning. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders, I'm sorry, 24 thrones, seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments and with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within, and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let's worship our God now. Will you go with me in prayer? Oh Lord, there is nothing that we could add to what is said here. The glories of your word are piercing to our hearts. Lord, open our eyes. Help us to see the beauty, the wonder, the majesty of the risen Christ. The lamb who was slain for us. May we be like those in heaven and those on the earth. Fall down and worship him who is worthy. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. I have always been fascinated by the images that the Hubble telescope takes. It's called the ultra deep field spectrum that takes these amazing images uh, of outer space. There's this one image that I have looked at numerous times. And when you look at it, just at first glance, it looks like, oh, somebody took a picture of someone's Christmas lights, you know, up there on the mountain. Look at all those pretty colors. But upon closer look, you can see that this picture is is not someone's Christmas lights. In fact, it's a picture full of galaxies, full a countless number of galaxies just on this one photo. The NASA website states that the ultra deep field observations represent a narrow deep view of the cosmos looking into the ultra deep field is like 
it would be like peering through an eight-foot-long straw at the, the sky and, and taking a picture. It's amazing what we've been able to discover and to see the expanse of the cosmos that the Lord God has created. But what is the, the point of peering deep into the cosmos and into the universe? What, what are these scientists trying to discover as they do this? Why even try to fathom what seems to be the unfathomable universe? They will say they're trying to discover the age and the origin of the universe and how it came into existence. Well, I'm not an astronomer, I'm not a physicist, and I am certainly not an origin scientist. But I can save these guys some time. I could save them a lot of time. Because while looking at galaxies far, far away is, is fascinating, and we should do so. I love doing it myself. The center of the universe... The origin of the universe is found right here in Revelation 4 and 5. It is, in fact, a throne. And the one who sits on that throne, who is worthy of all of our praises, all of our amens. You won't be able to discover this truth with the Hubble telescope. You're going to have to look into something that penetrates much more deeply, something that is described as a sword penetrating the heart and the soul and the spirit. It is, in fact, the living and an active word of God. Were our hearts not burning as we read the glories here of Revelation 4 and 5? That's what I would like us to consider this Easter morning. This wonderful truth that Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. And his resurrection was for the purpose of his exaltation. Jesus humbling himself by suffering and dying led to what Paul says in Philippians 2. God highly exalting him and bestowing upon him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on the earth. And under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father Almighty. And so this morning, when you think about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to think about his exaltation. The Lord Jesus is on his throne. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul has this beautiful prayer that he prays for the Ephesians. And we read in Ephesians 1 that he prays that the Ephesians would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and he seated him on the right hand of God the Father Almighty in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power, and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Jesus' resurrection points us to his exaltation. He is seated far above all power all glory he receives all power and glory because he is the risen lord 
And so that's why Revelation 4 and 5 can be an Easter passage for us this morning. Because it points to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead and he is seated with power and authority and he is holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord God Almighty, the one to receive glory and honor and power forever and ever and ever. And we believe, just as we professed this morning, that Christ rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so this morning, let's focus on his exaltation, his ascension that was only possible because of his resurrection. So this morning, this Easter morning, let us profess that Christ's resurrection and his exaltation is the focal point of all of creation. And therefore, he is worthy of all of our praises. And in Revelation 4 and 5, we're going to see uh, great examples, uh, great songs and, and, and shouts that we too can emulate. These are called doxologies. These are liturgical praises of God. And there's three doxologies in these two chapters that we'll focus on this morning. It's the the doxology of the angels, the angels in heaven, the doxology of the saints, the the 24 elders around the throne, and then there's the doxology of the church, the church universal, the church of all time and all places, and they will help us to praise the risen Christ this morning. Let's look to their examples, how they teach us to worship. First, let's look at the doxology of the angels that is found in verse 8 of chapter 4. Just by way of reminder, especially for those visiting with us this morning, this is a vision from the Apostle John of of heaven and of what the Lord Jesus showed him. And there are many symbols and word pictures in the book of Revelation that helps us to understand the glory and the majesty of God. And so we need to remember that Revelation is apocalyptic literature, and therefore it follows certain rules and patterns that we don't normally see in other places in Scripture. And so since we don't read much apocalyptic literature in our everyday lives, reading Revelation can be very strange and seem strange and confusing and maybe even scary to some. But as we read these two chapters, it will be helpful to reference and to know that a lot of the language that John is using is borrowed from like Isaiah 6 and Daniel chapter 7 and Ezekiel 1. And what we'll find is he is using this language to describe this amazing vision that he sees here of the risen Christ. And so what we are seeing is, and what we are reading is, is symbolic in nature. The numbers are highly symbolic and so are these descriptions. They're they're highly symbolic, and yet they're real. They're they're what John saw. They were the best that he could describe these these realities in in, in heavenly terms. And so the first group that we see giving praise to the one who sits on the throne are these living creatures. And we know from the scriptures, in fact, that these are the angels around the throne. Specifically, they are the cherubim. And the scriptures tell us they seem to be of the highest order of angels. The, the ones who are, who are the closest to the throne. They appear here to John in overwhelming power and strength. 
And that's why he describes them using this highest order of nature, uh, things like that of a lion, you know, the king of the jungle, uh, of an ox, the, the greatest of the domesticated beast, an eagle, the greatest in flight, and a man, of course, the image of God. And they appear here with six wings, which Isaiah records with two they covered their feet, with two they covered their face, with two they were flying and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. They are so close to this throne that even they must be shielded from the glory and the awesomeness and the power of God. He describes them as full of eyes. Surely this is to show the omniscience and sovereignty of God that even through his angels he is all-seeing and all-knowing. And what are they saying? What are they shouting, never stopping to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is to come. That's why I love when we say this together and when we sing it here at the close of the service, we actually join the chorus of heaven, praising God on his throne. The worship of the angels here helps us to understand the holiness of God. He is three times holy. And whenever you read in your scripture something repeated three times, that means it's important. That means pay attention. That means not only is that who God is is holy, but he is super holy. There is no one more holy than him. There is no one like him. Their worship helps us to understand that he is eternal. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. There's there's no one older than him. He has no beginning and no end. He is in no way limited by time. The one whom John sees, the one whom the angels praise is the great I am, and he is holy, holy, holy. This morning, when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you think of him being raised from the dead, think of the one whom the angels here are never ceasing to stop praising and saying, holy, holy, holy. What a privilege it is for us to join in that chorus this morning. But the praise doesn't stop there. In verse 11 of chapter 4, we see the doxology of the elders. These 24 elders who we said last week represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the Old and the New Testament coming together, God's wonderful covenant plan from the beginning of the world to the end, coming together to praise and to worship Almighty God, and those whom we know are placed in high esteem and honor around the throne of God, have and they've been part of God's great plan of redemption since the very beginning, what do they do? They fall down and worship. They, they cast their crowns before the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They worship him who lives forever. And and what are they saying? How, How do they worship? They sing. They sing. You guys were doing an awesome job singing this morning. 
I'm thinking, can we just repeat that again? Are you worship team guys too tired to do that? I mean, that was, that was glorious. We'll talk about why that's so important. And for those of you men who weren't singing, you're being unbiblical, sorry. <laughs> you got to sing because that's what we're going to do in heaven. That's what the elders here were doing. What are they singing in verse 11? Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed. And why do they sing? What is it that is, that is motivating them? What is it that is welling up in them and moving them to sing? Look over in chapter 5 at verses 9 and 10. They are singing to the Lamb. And who is this Lamb? The lamb that was slain, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. They're praising the lamb who was slain, and that may sound weird to you this morning. What do Christians talk about when they say those kind of things? In the Old Testament, sacrificial lambs were given to make atonement for sin. And that got old. That got burdensome. That didn't fix the problem. And so God sent his one and only son, whom we say is the Lamb of God, who was killed for our sin. That's what we mean by the Lamb who was slain. And the worship of the elders here helps us to understand the redeeming power and the wonderful work of Christ's death on the cross, whereby he ransomed a people to be his very own, it says. And his victory was assured by him rising from the grave. Their worship teaches us humility. It humbles us. What do they do? They fall down before the throne. They fall prostrate. And they worship and they sing and they praise the one who lives forever and ever. We are not worthy. He is worthy. He's worthy of all of our praise. But it doesn't stop there. The doxology keeps on going. Look there at the end of chapter 5. In chapter 4, it seems like the identity of this one who's on the throne is a little a little shaded, a little obscured for us. Who is this glorious one who is seated on the throne? But in chapter 5, it comes into full focus that it is the Lamb of God, the Lamb who was slain. And what is remarkable is that John describes here the one on the throne as the Lamb standing before everyone, all of creation, heaven and earth, slain. Slain. Do you see what he is trying to describe here? Do you understand what he is saying? That Jesus now stands in glory, bearing the marks of his sacrifice. Think about that. Is that not remarkable? That the risen Lord the glorified, risen Christ, that he has this perfect, holy, 
God-like, most powerful body and presence there ever was, and yet he still has his wounds. He still has the marks of his sacrifice. The permanent reminder that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son to be slain. The price that Jesus paid for atoning for our sin will be visible for all of eternity. That is why Jesus told the Apostle Thomas not long after his resurrection, you know, doubting Thomas, he said, unless I see him and I put my hand in his side and my fingers through his hand where he was pierced, I'm not going to believe. And then what did Jesus say? Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand here. Place it on my side. And he says to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. Believe. Do you believe? Do you believe that he died and rose again? And in heaven, we will see what we believe. Because of who Jesus is, and because of what he has done, he is worthy of being worshipped forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And who else comes into the picture with the angels and with the leaders of the church of old, the elders? Everyone. Everyone's there. All of creation, everything that ever was and will be, it's all there. John says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. This is everyone. This is the church triumphant. This is the Holy Catholic, the universal church. They're all praising the Lamb of God who was and who is and who is to come for what he has done and what he is going to do when he returns. Have you ever wondered why here in the American South that thousands upon thousands are drawn to football stadiums and coliseums to cheer and praise their favorite teams? I mean, what is it that can get so many people grouped in to these massive places that that hold thousands upon thousands of people and and, and spend millions upon millions of dollars? I mean, it's, it's practically a religion what we do with SEC football. It's amazing how much excitement and energy is, can be put into this religion, I mean, entertainment. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Have you, even if you don't care, you could just flip on the TV and go, oh, you know, that's crazy. Why is it important to so many people? Why is it so meaningful? Why do we get so fired up about it? And if it's not football, put concert. Anything that draws thousands and thousands of people. Protests. 
Why? I believe it's because we all desire an earthly experience that will fulfill the longings that we have for a glory that's beyond ourselves. I think these experiences, gathering with thousands upon thousands of people and cheering on and getting excited about one goal or one one cause, it reminds us of of what we were created for. It it, it wells up in us this this desire, this passion that, that we long to experience. In other words, it's because joining our voices with thousands upon thousands, it excites us and perhaps helps us imagine what the praises of heaven will be like. It will be even greater than Alabama football, if that's I know that's hard to imagine, but it will be. But this longing for glory and praise, it will not be found in our favorite sports team. It won't be found at the greatest concert we've ever been to. It won't be found at fill in the blank. It can only be found in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and praising him forever and ever. And so what can we learn from these myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands standing before the throne? We can learn and we see that we were created to worship. We were made to sing. Even if you can't sing, you will be perfected and be able to sing one day. And these eternal hymns that we see here, they help us join into the chorus of heaven and participate. And that is why singing is this unique way that God has created us to give our amens to these wonderful truths that we find in Holy Scripture. Singing and praise is how we respond to what God has done through the resurrection. Hallelujah, the Scripture says. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Oh, sing hallelujah. So this morning we confess, we profess, worthy is the lamb who was slain because he died and rose again and he lives forever and ever and ever. And he is worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever and ever. Don't you see it? Don't you see it? Have you not known Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable, Isaiah says. So this morning I ask you, do you know the risen Christ? Do you know Jesus? Do you know the one who rose from the dead and who lives forever? and ever, and is worthy of all of our praise. One pastor said about the resurrection, said, if Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, whether or not he rose from the dead. 
you've not considered the one who died and who rose from the dead, whom God has highly exalted, that every knee should bow and worship. And the Lord Jesus Christ is calling you this morning to repent. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from yourself. Turn away from anything else that you've called religion. Turn away from your denial. Turn away from your apathy. And believe. Believe the Lamb who was slain. Believe that Christ has risen from the dead and he's conquered sin and death. And then join this morning in the chorus of heaven, singing, Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. So let's one more time say it. He has risen. risen Oh, let us give blessing and honor and glory and praise to him who lives forever and ever. Join with me in prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you so much this morning for these tastes of heaven. These reminders that we were made for a glory that is beyond anything this world has to offer. And Lord, it's, it's, it's not just heaven. It's not just this ethereal state, this, this amorphous thing. It, it, it's, it's about Jesus. It's about Christ crucified. And, and him sitting there on the throne bearing the marks of his great love for us. Lord, help us to see it. Help us to imagine it and fill our lives and our hearts with praise, even now as we sing. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.